What is up all you Bushi bros and Ana Musha? Welcome to episode 19 of The World Is My Burrito, aka Twimby, a podcast where I invade ancient burritos, challenge the ingredients to a duel, then light them up like an American Christmas in 1980. As always, I am your host, Corey T, coming at you from Tampa, Florida on this fine June 30th, 2023, really cutting it close for the end of the month, trying to utilize my Bluehost monthly... Uh, subscription, uh, Bluehost, Buzzsprout monthly subscription. I don't know where to put this. We'll figure it out later. Uh, if you're watching this, you're going to know a couple, you're going to notice a couple of inserts, um, where like, obviously I'm wearing different clothing, look a little bit rougher. Um, I had some issues with this episode. Uh, some things I did genuinely forget to like add in here and it's like, oh duh, this is kind of a necessary thing that needs to be in here. Uh, but the other thing is the entire back half of my episode, for whatever reason, testing out these new mics, by the way, um, a lot of weird audio glitches. Like every couple of seconds, I would lose one entire second of audio um, just gone. And it may not seem like a lot, but a lot could be said in one second um, or like two seconds, whatever. It was enough time. It was annoying. So, yeah, deal with it. If you listen to this previous episode, you'll know this is a deeper dive into Ghost of Tsushima's themes, facts, creative history, personal opinions, etc. Uh, if you haven't heard the previous episodes, start off with Epic Fails of History, episode 27, where Eric Slater and I join forces, the likes of which have never been seen, to discuss the history of the Mongolian invasions of Japan, then hop back to the Twinbee episode 18 for our reverse interview about the game. Links in the show notes. Uh, or listen to these however you want. I'm not your sensei. Rather than have one chonky episode, you get two healthy portions, and I mean a third if you consider the historical one. As always, this episode is going to be a little mix and match. Uh, history and trivia are both scattered throughout the episode in hopes of keeping those facts alongside other immediately relevant topics. This episode features the most headers and greater breakdowns than any prior, and I didn't want things to feel like they were getting lost. Hopefully this makes sense as you hear it, and if you don't notice anything, then I succeeded. On to kitchen keeping. Um, this is being filmed a little bit differently if you're actually looking at it. And, I mean, even listening, the audio quality might be different. I was supposed to record this on my Laconia trip, so it was going to be very bare bones. And I'm trying out this Anchor microphone. Uh, and I, I wanted to keep with that. I wanted to see, like, okay, what can I do? How easily can I record using just my phone as a camera? Uh, and then, like, reading off the laptop, really just <laughs> cutting it down. Yeah, so that's why things might sound different and definitely will look different. I don't have the colored lights behind me and all that jazz. Anyways, back to the script. While you were waiting for this episode, I was busy studying the blade. Not really. 100% uh, of this episode had been written before I left Florida, uh, but I had to postpone recording for the sake of a better travel experience. So the beginning and end have only been slightly edited. Anyways, everything involving putting those episodes out, the Laconia trip, recovering from said trip, housework, photo work, and all the usual things have really been keeping me slammed. 
the episodes after this will be covering two vastly different topics. Number one, Urasawa and Tezuka's Pluto manga. I've got another special guest coming on that episode solely because they have not stopped talking about it since first reading it. Uh, the other episode will be a recap of traveling to New Hampshire by motorcycle, possibly featuring Zach. Um, I'm actually trying to set up a few themed episodes as some holidays approach. Uh, no spoilers for topics yet, but some of them were very recently inspired. And some have been in mind for a while. Cross those fingers. Anyways, on to this episode. Let's get going with some personal history. So I also realized, like, another kind of odd insert, but I realized that I'm not recommending things. Uh, maybe I haven't. I don't know. I could go back and look. But I realized that in this entire thing, I... I do not personally recommend the game until I reach the light. But if you if you've never played this game, it is a ton of fun. If this is the first episode you're listening to it, I absolutely recommend it. It's 100% worth the purchase, especially now that they have the director's cut uh, with Iki Island DLC. Um, I absolutely recommend playing the entire main story before going to Iki Island. There's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to spoil anything. But I, I can say, as far as, like, actual mechanics, gameplay, difficulty, Iki Island is a little more difficult. So it makes sense, even just through the fighting mechanics, that Iki Island come last. Um, but, yeah, the game is good. How things, how your enemies scale are good. How, you know, your mechanics scale are marvelous. Uh, the story progression, like, it... It's a very emotionally impactful game. So 110% absolutely recommend go play this game right now, 80 hours, and then come back and listen to this episode, uh, and then email me and tell me how much you liked it. I played Ghost of Tsushima in early 2021, before it won a bunch of awards, but after everyone knew it was the shit. This also means I had not played the DLC. I think it had released like right after completing the main story, but I was already mech deep in Horizon Zero Dawn at the time. In preparation for an NG Plus play, I actually replayed all of Act 1 in a new new game to get the controls down, then switched back over to NG Plus. At the beginning of 2023, I played through at least half of NG Plus before experiencing Iki Island then beat the remainder of the main story. This puts me around the 100-hour marker in total gameplay. I have 100% of this game with the exception of Legends mode. Uh, moving twice in a year ate a lot of time. Then PlayStation was doing like new pricing structures and stuff. Um, and you know we're packing and stuff, so that subscription never got renewed. Uh, as for personal history, with the historical history, there ain't much. Uh, this took place during the Kamakura period of Japan, which isn't exactly the most popular period of time. Uh, usually books spoke about pottery and maybe a little bit about types of housing. Uh, like Even now, Japanese historians are still working to uncover more information on this era. It's kind of like the early Viking days. People were too busy living and maybe warring to sit and write out every single act. Heck, maybe they didn't even know how to write, but that's a discussion for a different podcast. 
I did know general information about the Mongol invasions. However, prepping for Eric's episode was the most I'd ever delved into that topic. And boy, is it a very deep topic that really opened up my eyes. Moving on to world history. If you didn't heed my suggestion by going back and listening to Epic Fails episode 27, then you're just going to have to live in obscurity. I ain't doing it again. But to establish the time period, the Kamakura period was between 1192 and 1333. Long time ago. Before words like ninja and shinobi no mono existed, which is why you'll never hear those words used in this game. Samurai of this time were mostly known for their proficiency with the bow and were great hunters. Weird how that works. The era of the sword was not yet at hand. Uh, a lot of history during this area was actually passed on by song, a fact I only learned from Professor Hongo Kazuto during this research. Uh, we're about to get into the thick of it, so let's prep you with some game stats. Ghost began development in 2014. It was released for PlayStation 4 on July 17, 2020 as the final exclusive title for that system. Both the Iki Island DLC and the PS5 version of the game were released in August of 2021. Uh, out the gate, you could play the English dub, uh, the native language, or the Japanese dub, the non-native language for once. They also offered Kurosawa mode, a black and white mode that threw some grain on the screen and kind of double-timed a lot of the effects to give it this older film feel. The developer was Sucker Punch Productions, the publisher, Sony Interactive Entertainment, directors, Nate Fox and Jason Connell, producer, Brian Fleming, programmer, Chris Zimmerman, creative director, Jason Connell, writers, Ian C. Ryan, Liz Albel, Patrick Downs, and Jordan Lemos, composes, Ilan Eshkeri and Shigeru Umebayashi. Just these names alone cover a ton of content. Brian Fleming is a co-founder of Sucker Punch. Nate has worked on every Sucker Punch game. Uh, several of the remaining names are Sucker Punch alumni, and the remainder from them have worked with franchises like Far Cry 4, 5, and Primal, several Star Wars The Old Republic DLC, tons of big-name licensed mobile games. It is a pretty stacked cast. The coolest person here is Shigeru Umebayashi, uh, who was a rocker back in the early 80s, then moved on to composing or writing music for 60 Chinese and Japanese films before working on this, his first video game. That's a hell of a list, uh, but here are some of the ones I'm familiar with. Onmyoji 1 and 2, House of Flying Daggers, and Jet Li's Fearless. Honestly, go watch them all. Um, Plenty of other people were involved, however, these were the guys who kept showing up for or were mentioned in interviews. That's why I picked this selection. This is normally the part where I would list all the voice actors, but I only played the game in Japanese because I am a weeb. This also means there are two entire sets of actors. Rather than more lists, I'll attach names to those whose faces were used for character models. There will also be a link in the description. With the creative team comes their creative approach. Because we get tons of interviews, we get tons of neat facts. And here are a few. For the design history, 
Sucker Punch was tired of superhero games and wanted to make something different. They ended up in Japan because they thought the location was cool. They thought the job was cool because a samurai solves problems with swagger and wit, their words. Uh, they thought this particular period was cool because it, like, what better way to naturally get a player into the right mindset than for the oppressor to be an invader. Sucker Punch brought in experts on fighting, landscape, religion, language, all of it. If you saw something written in Japanese or played the Japanese dub, it was as historically accurate as the modern professional knows it to be. Between the beauty of the land, diversity of the people, and the touching missions, they wanted you to want to save Tsushima. Combat was the hardest mechanic to implement. It took them six years to release this game because that had to work everywhere at all times. The only reason this game even got made is because of Sucker Punch's relationship with Sony. The agreement wasn't to make a game, it was to make Ghost. Ladies and germs, now it is time to get into spoiler territory. If you haven't played the game or the accompanying DLC, now's your chance to let this burrito sail for another day. But if you want to risk it all... What does Ghost of Tsushima do that is so special? Well, your journey is the vehicle by which a much greater story is told. More often than not, while you seek others for help, they also use you as a tool to their independent ends. It's the classic, you murder my enemies and I'll murder yours scenario that we're all very familiar with. And while your character is the one to swing the final blade, it was not without others' help. The game was meant to be an anthology of stories, and by calling missions tales, they hoped to convey that it was everyone's story. It's like Ocean's Eleven if you could spend more time with each of the gang, and if the end goal was to prevent societal collapse. For this episode, I'd like to cover who the characters are, how the war impacted their lives, and why everyone is some shade of gray. Starting that list is the obvious Sakai Jean. He's you. Uh, he represents duty with question. Jin's role upsets the teachings of Bushido. A new threat arrives and old methods don't work. Seeing how overpowered the samurai are, and with the guidance of the thief Yuna, Jin overcomes his apprehensions and begins winning by wandering through the night and stabbing people in the back. He is the hero of the people and the moral gray area. Trivia. Um, Daisuke Tsuji is the face and VA for Jin. Uh, he's actually streamed the gameplay before, which is really dope that like a person interacting with it, particularly the MC, um, is playing their own content. I don't follow a ton of like video game VAs or anything, so I don't know how often this happens. Um, just thought it was really neat that he did it. Uh, he was also in the Man in the High Castle TV series, which I haven't watched yet, but that is equally as dope. Uh, he's based on Usagi Ojimbo and named after Stan Sakai, who created Usagi Ojimbo, if you didn't know. <clears throat> Jin is obviously directly affected by all of this. Um, a lot of people he knows, dies, uh, you know, yeah, MC. Second, 
Lord Shimura, the Jito or land steward of Tsushima. He represents honor. He's stuck in tradition to the worst degree. Even after repeatedly witnessing the overpowered and quote-unquote underhanded Mongolian army, he is totally willing to sacrifice the people he's supposed to be protecting just so the emperor, who isn't even involved, gives him a cool headstone. And maybe something about samurai heaven. This lasts all the way to the end of the game. The final choice you make is to either kill your uncle so he stops hunting you, or let him live and be hunted to the ends of the island. Uh, there is some hypocrisy here, too. I mean, obviously. During the final conversation, he helps you loose a stuck cart that's delivering supplies to the people supporting the ghost's mission. He doesn't really care about the ghost so long as it's some peasant, but he does care when it's a trained samurai. If the plebes can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, it's fine, but you can't get help from your reigning lord who's the only one equipped with an army trained to fight the enemy. Uh, there are a lot more points of like hypocrisy in what Lord Shimura does, like working with pirates, even though he doesn't like you working with pirates. You know, it's he is very much the hypocrite. But you know, if he would just admit it, he'd be that much more honorable. Anyways, Lord Shimura's helmet has water buffalo horns, which belong to Kuroda Nagamasu historically. Next up is Sadanobu Ishikawa, an archer. He represents a lot of misplaced regret, leading to some mildly unchecked vengeance. He originally taught a dude how to use the bow. Dude turned that skill against the clan Ishikawa worked for. Dude was taken care of. Then Ishikawa was made to honorably retire. After some time, a young peasant girl named Tomoe appeared and showed great promise, inspiring him to once again take up the bow, only for her to seemingly do the same thing. He's only kind of more noble than Shimura in that he is okay with Jin's ghostly efforts and doesn't want everyone on Tsushima to die in the name of Otter, but is 100% the reason why a select few innocent people die. Of course, that knife gets driven in further when we learn that Tomoe's apparent betrayal was all an elaborate ruse to keep herself alive long enough to kill the Mongols and escape the island you actually get to converse with her in a very chill mission. And it really is set up that maybe she's leading you on, or maybe she's being honest. I loved how that mission played out, but sort of wish there was an opportunity to make a decision at the end. The series of missions really messes with your head, and the option to make your own ending decision would only amp that up. However, Jin needs to remain the altruistic hero in this tale an option could really mess with his entire story and character. Ishikawa is the least directly affected by the invasion, yet causes some of the greatest damage to the Mongolian army. Yuna, woman of the people, she represents the people who can fight back, but honestly have better things to do with their lives. The nobles don't care about their people, and she just wants to get off the island. She only helps Jin in order to save her brother, and so she can convince Uncle Shimmy to ship them off the island. She's only mildly inconvenienced by the Mongol invasion. If her brother weren't an accomplished blacksmith, we would never see her. She wants nothing to do with this and is totally okay with the samurai and anyone else handling the assailants. Just leave them to it. 
Her story teaches us about Japanese slavers, the Black Wolf, and the Mamushi Brothers. Uh, she's also the one to teach Jin that it's okay to get a little stabby-stabby from behind. What is the value of honor if you can't accomplish the righteous task at hand? Taka, Yuna's brother. He's the face of the people who want to fight back but cannot. All Taka has are his skills, but he is willing to use those skills to see Jin's goals accomplished. When Yuna reaches her stopping point, Taka steps in to prove that he, too, can be a fighter and directly assist the ghost. He's kind of like the Young Syndrome from The Incredibles, only good God does this not in the same way. Taka's death made me tear up a little, both times. When Yuna comes in and starts losing her shit, it felt like a display of how I was feeling inside. Taka was a good man. Uh, he is the purest of characters in this game. Pour one out for the homie. Lady Masako Adachi. Oddly enough, she may be the least gray area character here. As noble as she is when you first meet, her story certainly darkens as it unfolds. Masako represents unchecked selfishness. Or maybe vengeance? Or both? She's one of the few characters who thought she was doing right, but had, in fact, strategically been creating trouble for herself throughout the years, and is basically the very thing Shimura is worried Jin will become. A cold-blooded killer with no honor. She is directly affected by the invasion as the beach attack kills her husband and sons. Then her remaining family gets assassinated while she's around. Then we discover that a bunch of people associated with the family were all roped together by one main conspirator who used this invasion to hatch the assassination plans. There is no lack of depth to any character's story, but I think this is the most complex. She deals with so many people who are in moral gray area, and to be honest, the root cause really had me asking if the perpetrators were truly in the wrong based on Masako's lifetime of decisions. Masako wants vengeance so bad that she kills a lot of the people necessary to gain information, but is willing to kill Jin to get her away. In a roundabout way, she kind of gets other people killed for her own actions, too. Norio. He's the warrior monk who fights for righteousness. He's also fighting to save his pacifist brother, Enjo, who is also a monk. Norio's belief here is that he's justified because, one, they are fighting for their country, and two, he's not fighting out of hate. He is a guardian. However, his story progresses in the worst way possible. After discovering Enjo's dismembered, beaten to a pulp body, and after Enjo's request, Norio has to make the hard decision to kill his brother so he no longer has to suffer. Next up, you find the camp of the Mongol leader who did this and make plans to take care of business. After this is the final mission, which is one of the most unique I've ever played. Uh, you awake and Norio is gone. You take the path to the enemy camp, but notice shit is on fire. As you enter, you are greeted with a terrifying landscape. Bodies alighted with fire are covering the ground. Mongols come running out of buildings, also on fire, dying shortly thereafter. Eventually, you reach Norio, who has already completed the task by himself. You never kill anyone in this mission. You have to live the experience as Jin would. 
No movie, no quick time events, just walking through bodies. And that was such an amazing decision. Uh, trivia, some sketches of Norio seem way too fierce. Uh, like, they, they look like an anime character, honestly. Uh, the Norio we get is daunting in size, but not overtly threatening in appearance. He's like a big fluffy bear. Next up is Ryuzo. He's your brother from another mother. Despite having no noble upbringing, he is an extremely accomplished warrior. After losing a duel with Jin, who was a little over-aggressive in his youth, he loses the chance at working for a noble house. This leads him to joining and eventually leading the Straw Hat Ronin. At first, the only effect the war had was making food a little more difficult to access. Jin decides to help Ryuzo with the intent that Ryuzo would repay him. And in the best twist of the game, Ryuzo joins Koten Khan in order to keep that food flowing. He only cares about his men, who were otherwise ostracized by the noble faction on the island. More gray area, in order for his people to survive, he turns against his people. Might things have been different if the ruling class had taken better care of those they ruled? Who knows? But damn if I didn't tear up a bit during the final fight with Ryuzo. Our final ally is Kenji, the sake salesman and basically comedic relief. Uh, he's Mac from Always Sunny, playing both sides so he comes out on top. But as his minor story progresses from main story to Iki Island, he begins doing what he can for the people using the ghost moniker. Still the same shenanigans though, lots of barrels involved. Trivia, the book mentions a relationship with his horse, Miko, but there is no notable horse in the game. Uh, the sketch includes a donkey, though. Confusion abounds. Now, for not an ally, we have Koten Khan. Koten is spreading the love of the great blue sky. While Genghis was known for being ruthless, Kublai killed only for the sake of it, seeking no gain. And Kublai was never the killer, only the instructor. Koten is the tool who follows orders. He comes in hot and heavy and really disses the samurai, but those first deaths were there for the sake of hopefully not having to kill anyone else. They knew the samurai would fight. Hey, let's take the fight out of them. Which was also a very Genghis thing to do. The samurai did not agree with this approach. Koten is a very talky boy. He really wants to convince Shimura to give up, which does not work. Then he really wants to convince Jin to stop ghosting him. See what I did there? That also doesn't work. Throughout the game, he slowly amps up his violent efforts in an attempt to reach as peaceful as a conclusion as possible. He was always in the wrong as the invader, but props, at least he didn't come in with genocide. He waited until later, worked his way up to it. The American voice actor is Patrick Gallagher, uh, who also played Attila in Night at the Museum. The Coton costume was 40 pounds, and over the course of the game, he ended up losing 25 pounds. So he eventually had to, like, <laughs> uh, wear a suit to help him, like, buff up and fill out the costume. And what they did was called performance capture, which is doing the entire thing. So the, the walking in-game is him walking in a motion capture costume and talking. So they're doing like facial capture 
motion capture, it's the full thing. Whereas like motion capture normally is just the physical movement and then like voice or face capture is just that. So he was, what you see in the game, he was actually doing in real life. Really neat thing to learn. One of the other odd people out there is Yuriko, the old caretaker. Uh, she is the simplest yet probably the saddest story in the entire game. She keeps phasing in and out of dementia uh, between thinking you're Jin or thinking you are Kazumasa, Jin's father. By the end, she only sees Kazumasa, allowing Jin to pry into his own childhood and his father's history. He discovers that she had an affair with Kazumasa. She is also the first person to really give us access to Jin the child and really humanizes him. Um, and also humanize his dad, to be perfectly honest, because Jin only knows his dad as the warrior, and honestly, like Shimoda, that's all he teaches as well. I've read comments where people were extremely upset at the affair idea and actively hoped it wasn't true because they couldn't handle that thought. These are the same type of people who think the Earth Federation and Gundam is completely without blemish. According to Joanna Wang, they went out of their way to look for a respectful place for Yuriko to die. And good God, let me tell you, that place gave me some feelings. It is very much like the uh, Aerith scene in Final Fantasy VII. Um, it's real hard to go back to that area. Little bit of trivia. During the game's creation, they used a robo-voice until the dialogue was nailed down. Patrick Down stated that Yuriko's tail was on the chopping block because of this, commenting that nobody could emotionally connect. And only after putting a voice to it was it like making people cry. The peasants. Uh, the residents have a lot of really solid stories and are obviously very directly affected by the invasion. The only trivia I have on them is related to their outfit colors and designs representing the general areas they're in. Snowflakes, uh, rivers, wetlands, you get the idea. So if you haven't actually played the game, just pay attention to that. The Mongols. Uh, the original concepts for their design was similar to Assassin's Creed Valhalla. They were very brutish and fantastical. Again, anime characters. I'm really glad they grounded it more. Um, some Mongols are themed after historical job types and beliefs, such as those who revered falcons and those who revered the Mongol god Od Khan, who's all about fire. Oh, hey, does it seem like I'm missing a few people? I might have. Uh, Kazumasa Sakai, father to Jin. My recommendation is to play through the entire game. Then go to Iki Island. Like, if you've never played before, beat the whole thing, then go to Iki Island. For a lot of reasons. Uh, but during the main story, you get this idea in your head about Jin's dad being a standout dude before coming to the realization that he kinda ain't, and that his death truly did need to happen to benefit all beings. It certainly solved all of Iki Island's problems in more ways than one. The Ghost of Tsushima fan page lists Iki as under control of several bands of raiders and pirates. Though, I'm not gonna lie, 
the people seemed pretty okay with that. Like the pirates and raiders may not have actually been pirating or raiding themselves. As you wander Iki Island, it seems pretty apparent that the samurai didn't have a huge foothold here. Uh, they really didn't care about this place other than what they could get from the people by way of taxes. Kazumasa's invasion was no different than Koten Khan. They invaded a land that did not recognize them as leaders, and which they did not, in fact, lead. But as a tool of his own lord, he did to the Iki people what Koten later did to Japan. He seems like a pretty stand-up guy in the same way that Koten does. He's trying hard to be a good retainer, and then a good lord, then a good warrior, and at the very end of it all, a good father. But with a lot of murder mixed in between those things. The guiding wind throughout the entire game is the personification of Kazumasa, which is a bit ironic because the wind seems so gentle and helpful while Kazumasa seems to be much more focused on battles and little else. Uh, the dialogue says as much. The oncoming storm at the end of the main quest would make much more sense to me. We learn very little about Kazumasa's past with his late wife, Jin's mother, and Lord Shimura's sister, Chiyoko Sakai, who died when Jin was seven. She was much more level-headed and seemed to have a greater grasp on life as a whole and its fleeting moments. Kazumasa needed her during his final battles on Iki and seemed to wish to hear her words. I wonder what this would be like had she been alive even longer. Would things have transpired the same had she actually been alive as opposed to just alive in Jin's dad's head? Chiyoko teaches Jin how to play the flute, which becomes an actual mechanic on Iki Island as opposed to something so readily forgotten in the main story. I kind of dig how the flute doesn't have a big role in the main story though. Only when it matters to us, the player, during the DLC, does it truly matter in the game as more than a tool. They didn't go crazy with it. The songbirds are the personification of her, and this makes sense. They're always guiding Jin to something helpful or to help someone in need. Uh, it seems characteristically accurate. Next to last, we have Tenzo. Kazumasa's murderer, but an otherwise stand-up guy. He helps Jin grow a lot in the DLC. He did what he had to do to protect his people, so it's kind of hard to fault him for the murder of Jin's dad. Um, I'm going to apologize for not really having any info on this guy. Not a ton to say, um, other than the fact that he is like super helpful and super useful. Uh, play the DLC. Lastly, Fune. She's the leader of the Raiders Tenzo fights for, and her story was also really damn good and tragic. Uh, again, I only did one playthrough of Iki, and Tenzo's impact was was much more directly intertwined with Jin's story. The same goes for the Eagle, who is the Mongol in charge of the Iki Island invasion. But most of her reason to exist was to have Jin struggle with his past, uh, which was executed very well. That's really all I have for characters. Holy shit, <laughs> let's get moving on to book history. Because yes, there is a book. It's just an art book, so call them Mongolian horse titties. 
From a strictly aesthetic perspective, it's a beautiful book and definitely one of the more interesting things in my collection. The book's binding looks just like that. Pages that were bound together by rope and not so much by adhesion. The pages are beautiful, the colors are beautiful, the art is beautiful, the teeny bits of info are informative, uh, but I honestly only recommend it if you're a completionist. It's cool to see where the game came from, but the game itself is so much more fun to boot up and explore. As for some negatives, there are a number of typos throughout. Uh, normally not a complaint, but when you only have like three dozen sentences throughout the entire thing, it seems like that'd be pretty easy to spot before production. The aforementioned softness comes with its own problem, that is, being soft. Uh, this can readily warp and bend in any direction. It was originally supposed to accompany me on my February trip, but after shoving it in a backpack, the fragility really stood out. This isn't something you can just throw in a backpack and take places. If it's not on a shelf or a flat surface, or in its own already soft container, it should just remain in that case. Like, don't leave it out. As for the content, um, changes were made, which is a common topic in the book. I already mentioned a few, but the original UI for the sword seemed to make something simple into something complex. It was kind of listed on page 174. Um, like, the fighting in the game, absolutely fucking phenomenal, so I'm really glad they went the way that they did, uh, because the way they described the UI is just dumb. They had an idea to let you know what day number you were on every day, like Mongol Invasion Day 9. Thank God they didn't keep that counter. Time moves along quickly enough without something frequently stopping your gameplay to remind you that following foxes, songbirds, and getting nude in public is unprofessional for a hero. Enough about that. Let's do some specific trivia. Uh, Ghost of Tsushima is actually the placeholder name, but they could never come up with anything better, and this really sticks in the brain. Alright, now it's time for trivia and the back half of the episode. Um, Ghost of Tsushima is actually the placeholder name, but they could never come up with anything better, and this really sticks in the brain. Um... Jason Connell and Nate Fox became tourism ambassadors for the island of Tsushima in 2021. Pirates and Vikings were considered uh, as like game character alternatives instead of samurai. There was a lot of free DLC in here and references to other video games. The one that's originally in the game is uh, there's a Sly Cooper themed outfit. Um, but then the actual DLC that you get free, by the way, was a God of War outfit, Bloodborne, Horizon Zero Dawn, and Shadow of the Colossus. They're all pretty cool. Um, unused characters uh, that you were supposed to be able to play at some point are Guardian Kaede slash Lady Sanjo and the Lord Adachi. Um, castles were the first things placed, then they kind of built the map around those. Uh, if they built a shrine nearby, they would work out the route later. So I kind of really like how they do the placement there. Um, according to historical records, nobody survived the beach invasion, but that would make for a pretty boring video game. 
Uh, a lot of the armor in this game, uh, honestly probably most of it, was from the Sengoku Jidai era. And the Mongol Huacha was from about 75 years after this invasion. Uh, straw hats were also from a later era. The Mongol weaponry may not have been all that accurate, uh, but it was... Um, they were known for taking things that they liked. Probably the furthest thing that they ever carried with them was the catapult. Uh, but if they liked weaponry while they were taking places over, they would just, you know, bring it into their own and start using it from that point on. Uh, the Hama Yumi bow, or Demon Vanishing bow, was a real object from this era. A lot of the other mythic items or tales are supposed to be real. Unfortunately, there was no specification as to which items they were referring to. Um, there wasn't a unified Japan during this era. There was just reward from the Shogun for gaining something. Now, despite winning against the Mongols, the samurai of Tsushima didn't actually gain land or objects. Because of this, the Shogun never honored them with any land or rewards of any kind, causing a distrusting rift between samurai and Shogun, inevitably leading to the downfall of this ruling system. On this topic of gain and loss, uh, in reality, not much was lost other than Buddhist statues, scriptures, and, uh, I mean, of course, lives. Dislikes. Um, this time around, I'm going to start with the dislikes, and because I have to re-record all of this, I'm going to generalize it, uh, because, yeah, the, the list is long, and I'm not doing this again. The first super simple thing is, I do not like the flame swords in the game. Reaching them is fun, but you get them so late in the game that I never really used them at all in the first playthrough. I might have activated them like twice. I'm pretty sure one of those was an accident. Uh, that changed only a little during the second playthrough, but with continued use came additional confusion as to why I was even using them. Like, went out of my way to use it, and it's like, okay, why? I, I don't care. Um, second, Kurosawa mode. It is a fun mode, but difficult to actually see anything. Uh, Kurosawa mode is actually how I first began playing the game on my first playthrough, and it was extremely demotivating during that first post-intro boss fight. Um, there's a camp nearby. You go in there, you get the big baddie out. Uh, I thought I had just somehow lost all of my gaming know-how, having come off of The Witcher after three years of gameplay. Uh, nope, you just can't really see enemies at night. Um, their moves, their movements aren't telegraphed quite as well. They do still have like lighting effects, but that didn't really help me, especially because I literally just started the game. I don't even know what any of this stuff is yet. Um, they had studio lighting on Kurosawa sets, so I feel like this could have been amended in some creative way. Uh, the remainder of these complaints are specifically related to how you earn trophies. And I'm not going to say that these are game-breaking, but if you are a completionist, uh, you might experience some similar frustrations. Songbirds. They become broken later in the game in both of my gameplays. Uh, like, where you proc them changes, when you proc them changes, how you proc them changes. Uh, 
uh, where they take you can change and some of them may not lead you anywhere some of them never actually land or don't land anywhere near the thing they're leading you to i understand why the devs wanted them to have collision but quite a few of these stated problems are specifically due to collision i played the game twice and near the end got two very different results uh, sometimes for the same mission uh, some birds never existed in one gameplay. Some birds never dropped me anywhere near the mission beginning. Uh, as an addition to this, the birds on Iki Island are pretty trash. They are kind of the worst of it, and it's almost humorous in some instances. Uh, like, in many, many, many cutscenes, you have to interact with the thing first, and then the bird will land in the middle of the air, so like four or five feet off the ground. You'll see it land, and then it takes off, like after you've already interacted with the thing. Mechanics. Uh, killing a dude by shoulder checking him off the cliff was weirdly difficult. I never accomplished it in my first playthrough, and lucked out on my second. As is tradition, the usual result is that after shoulder charging or shoving or whatever your video game mechanic offers, the enemy goes into the yeet animation but stays in the same spot. Uh, the other result, specific to this game, is that if you do luck out and knock them off of a cliff, they might just teleport to like a tiny ledge or the ground 50 feet below and take no damage. Uh, this same fall would kill you so damn fast. It just felt like you gotta hit the right guy at the right time, at the right place to earn this trophy. It's just dumb frustrating. Um, here's a weird thing that happened during my NG Plus gameplay. Uh, more than one, probably like two, maybe three times, um, enemies spawn during one of those cutscenes where you're only supposed to have a chat with someone. Like, you are interacting, pressing the button, stuff like that. You can't do anything. Well, you can, apparently, because enemies spawned and I had to fight them. But it was funny because they were, like, freaked out when they saw me. And I was freaked out when I saw them. And this is after an extremely... This is a, an emotional part. And then it's just like, ah! Um... Yeah, the Legends mode, the online versus mode, way too broken for me. I wasted a lot of time losing matches because an enemy got hung up on a collidable object outside of the map boundaries, and therefore they could not be killed. Uh, this got old like the second time it happened in the same day. You just The timer is lengthy, so you're just standing there waiting for the entire timer to run down. And you can peek around a corner and see the dude over there, waiting to die. Lastly, and most importantly, I feel like this is a genuine issue with the game. Nothing earned transfers beyond that individual playthrough. For example, the trophy Body, Mind, and Spirit requires the player to complete all Hot Springs, Haiku, Inari Shrines, and Bamboo Strikes. The moment you start NG+, every task you did, uh, and even every like mission you've completed, it's more than just this one trophy, they're gone. Entirely gone. Um, your items and your skills transfer, 
but not the check mark for having accomplished that task in the first playthrough. So every time you bowed to in the bowing areas, uh, and again, every single mission, um, like pedestrian mission, is gone. You have not done them. You must complete all of these tasks again in that one playthrough. I can understand this for like a new new game because you're getting a new new experience, but this is a slap in the face for NG+. You spend 80 hours working on this puzzle only for the entire puzzle to get thrown out. And let me reassure you, this game is fucking amazing and I'm really looking forward to eventually getting a PS5 and playing it for a third time on PS5 to see what that looks like. Now for likes. Hey, I forgot this in the script last time, so let's make it a priority this time. I absolutely love how they scale when you unlock weapons and earn new abilities. During both playthroughs, it always felt like I earned a new weapon or could level up a stance or weapon or something around the time I finally got comfortable with the previous setup. It particularly helps that the enemy diversity and challenges uh, and difficulty scale with you, so those newly earned things arrive just in the nick of time. This extends to the Iki Island experience. Uh, and this also encompasses the outfits, like the fancy things that you get from completing an outfit. Um, like, same thing, you, you unlock something new and it's like your experience through the rest of the game changes. Ryuzo's facial expressions when burning the Japanese is, like, heart-wrenching. Uh, the, like, facial twitching, the expressions, everything was just so precise and sad. Um, Yuriko's death was, like, the second time around. You know, all of this game, like, all of these things are effective the second time, too. But Yuriko's death, you're... You, you take her to where she eventually dies, where her family was buried, and it's high up on a cliff, and you're overlooking the plains, and you can see all of the, you know, burning villages and the destruction that's caused by the Mongol invasion. And you have to do the whole, like, look at something and press X to identify. And when you identify this, like, burning wreckage, she relates it to good memories and like it's so cool because Yuriko does the most for this entire fucking game she really does because you're getting Tsushima now like you get the young Jin you get the you know young Jin's dad and now you're getting you you've never been here but now you're getting Tsushima pre-invasion and all of you know the neat things that happen in these areas uh, so yeah, also dope. Shrines themselves were intentionally made to pull you away from what you were doing, and they nailed it. They do always feel like a tiny break in the game. Moving on to accolades. This might be the one time I don't list accolades. Uh, and it ain't because it didn't win any, it's because it won enough to be a whole mini-sode. But something worth mentioning is that this is the first game to take place during the Kamakura period. Not even the Japanese have done this. They haven't even made movies about the Mongol invasion. So it's, you know, an American studio that oddly does a couple of firsts for the Japanese. Um, resources. 
I have never heard of MobyGames.com before, but they came in clutch with a lot of the game dev names. They don't have the most in-depth of biographical information concerning everyone, but damn if their names and job titles throughout the years aren't on lock. Uh, I'd never heard of PSN profile either, but that really gave me a much more user-focused view of the game. Um, like stats, gameplay times, trophies earned, stuff like that. Um, it was really cool. News. Uh, more of the kaiju in the upcoming Gamer Netflix anime have been released. I'm still hyped for that. Ultraman Blazar releases this Saturday, July 8th. You can bet your ass I'm tuning into that. Skull Island, the cartoon series released on Netflix, and in the time it took to edit and re-record this, all this content, I was able to binge it. Uh, it is holy shit amazing, particularly if you loved Godzilla the Animated Series growing up, but it's, it is a lot of fun. I'm really excited for a season two. Uh, the other thing that happened in the time it took to release this, uh, Pluto TV has a Godzilla-specific channel. It runs 24-7. Um, the real interesting thing is that it will feature all of the Heisei-era films, all the Return of Mothra films, the 90s Godzilla, the series, uh, and more. It's free. Go install Pluto right now and just leave it on in the background. That's what I did all of last weekend. Shameless plugs. The Indiana Jones season on Podcasters Assemble is live. Uh, you'll have four movies to listen to. Um, and then Zach and I are on a Patreon-specific episode uh, we titled Drunk in an RV, where we were five, six beers deep uh, reviewing Kingdom of the Crystal Skull while I was in Laconia. Um, we also just did, it'll probably eventually release publicly, but Patreon-specific recording for 99's, The Brendan Fraser, The Mummy. Um, great movie. So that'll be coming out soon. Hey, if you want to see me in person, this warning is kind of super late at this point, but Infinity Con is taking place at Tallahassee at the Donald L. Tucker. Hmm. Hey, if you want to see me in person, this is going to be a little bit late, but Infinity Con is taking place in Tallahassee at the Donald L. Tucker Civic Center on July 8th and 9th. I will be covering the event and hopefully doing a couple of small interviews while there. Now it's time for Nacho Business, because it's my business. Brent and I recently finished all 112 episodes of Yu Yu Hakusho. Let me tell you, what a ride. I love that show and really recommend it. Uh, I'd never seen Beyond the Sensui arc before. I'd gotten like halfway through. Um, Back in the day, downloading was all you could do to get it if you missed it on TV. Um, so I downloaded it, and one of the very important episodes was corrupt. So I was like, I'm not finishing this without seeing that episode. Um, so I finally got to actually finish the show. This is the third time watching it. Um, the ending is a little bit rushed, but I think everything was handled pretty darn well for how they did it. Uh, hey, I also might do some streaming soon. Maybe I do have a Twinbee Twitch channel and have already streamed some like Blender tutorials, but games will also inevitably be a thing. So it'll be maybe Blender stuff, maybe photo stuff, maybe gaming stuff. Who knows? Guys, uh, 
you know, the original script was, holy shit, this was a lot. And it turned into more. Uh, and it is crunch time, and I have a con to do. Um, hopefully this makes up for all of the time just talking about its inevitable release. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, um, or, you know, follow me anywhere, you can find me on all social media platforms at Twimby Podcast. That's T-W-I-M-B Podcast. Uh, you can also email me, twimbypodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Tell me, you know, have you played the game? What did you think about it? You know, give me your experiences. And this could be email, Twitch, Instagram, wherever. Uh, but yeah, let me know what you think. But as always, I am out.